0: Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So specifically, welcome to our summer series on the Brahmin left, past, present, and future. And today uh, we're lucky enough to have for our guest, Princeton historian, and among many other things, renowned expert on populism, Jan Werner Müller. I'm John Plotz, and my co-host for our Brahmin Left series, I I kind of want to call it the BL, but then I I worry that that sounds like the British Library, um, is Adana Usmani, sociologist at Harvard, and RTB listeners likely know him already from our discussion of his work on the origins of mass incarceration in Episode 44, as well as Episode 51's conversation with Thomas Pacetti. And in fact, that conversation inspired this series because Pacetti has, in recent years, made a thought-provoking and also, for many, an ire-provoking argument about the ways in which European and American left-wing parties have increasingly drawn their support from an educated, non-working class political base, uh, high in educational attainment, I guess is the way he describes it. So today is the second of three conversations in which we think with and around that claim. The claim I think is in a nutshell though, Adana, I I invite you to, to, Push back if this is the wrong description. I think the claim is, in a nutshell, that for the past several decades, there's been a quote class D alignment that leaves many highly educated folks, especially the so called PMC professional managerial class, serving as the new core of left parties throughout the first world. So, if Piketty's facts and figures are right, how do we understand that shift? And Adana, do you want to nuance that at all? Or
1: for the purposes of uh, this conversation with Jan in particular, what is what will partly be of interest, I think, will be to discuss how the parties of the right have responded to that shift and how we might make sense of the rise of populism as a consequence of that shift. Totally. And as
0: I I was going to say, basically, we we really welcome Jan for his fascinating perspective, uh, given his incisive work on the underlying fabric of representative democracy in its North American and European manifestations. So I'll just say briefly, our last conversation, so episode one, was with Matt Karp, um, your colleague, Jan, uh, who's grounded in American politics and material interests. And today, we're fortunate to speak with Jan Werner Müller, whose books include Another Country, German Intellectuals, Unification and National Identity, uh, 2000, A Dangerous Mind, Carl Schmitt and Postwar European Thought, 2003, and Constitutional Patriotism, 2007, Uh, Many, many other things, but also forthcoming Christian democracy, a new intellectual history and democracy rules. But we were drawn to him by his uh, book published in English uh, 2016, was written in 2016 and published in English under the title, What is Populism? Among other things, that book aims to understand the identitarian logic of populism and how it can come to lodge within democracies. Is it the product, for example, of what he calls plutocratic populism, which I think is a wonderful phrase to think with or is there some other more systemic maladjustment in Europe and America, whereby the ground rules for deliberative democracy have gotten on the kind of track so that the wrong sorts of questions get debated and the wrong sorts of attacks come to define the always rowdy Agora
1: space. There are many things I wanna ask you about, about your account of where populism comes from. You say a few different things in the book, all of which I think are very provocative, but actually, before we talk about that, I was wondering if we could if I could characterize your argument to you and you could tell me whether this makes sense. In some ways, what you what I take you to be doing in the book is saying that people have taken the defining feature of populism to be its anti-elitism, but in fact what should concern us about right-wing populism today is not so much it's anti-elitism. In fact, at some point in the book, you say, there's a lot of very healthy anti-elitism in the history of developed country politics, and we might need a lot more of it going forward, but it's anti-pluralism. And I suppose, I guess my question, my first question is just whether you would agree that then the kind of anti-pluralism that should concern us today is not simply the preserve of right-wing populists, but that there are other kinds of anti-pluralisms maybe that also flourish today in advanced country politics. Is that fair? Would you say that anti-pluralism is the preserve of right-wing politics or is it also to be found elsewhere? The thing I'm thinking of in particular is something that John and I discussed a little bit yesterday with Matt Karp, which is a certain kind of attitude that you might call them the Brahmin left to the professional managerial class or whatever, but the kind of attitude that you have sometimes seen people of those political stripes take towards the people who have voted for, say, Trump, that they're stupid or that they're ignorant or that I wonder whether that also figures in the kinds of things that concern you about contemporary political developments.
2: So very good, which is to say very difficult question. Um, Let me start with a fairly pedantic remark, which is simply that if you find anything worthwhile in my account, it's, it's maybe worth underlining that I'm giving you an essentially purely formal approach. I haven't said anything about policy content. So if you tell me what you think about the right income tax level or immigration or how to solve the Euro crisis, et cetera, I could not tell from any of that whether you're a populist or not. It really is the specific claim about representation that ends in a particular form of, for shorthand, exclusionary identity politics, which is not to say, I hasten to add, that all identity politics is somehow exclusionary or dangerous or anything of that, anything of that that sort. So I think one of the problems one occasionally encounters is a conflation where basically populism is used as a shorthand for what is actually, Let's say radical right content, um, be it nativism, xenophobia, outright racism, and so on. And frankly, you can be you can be a nativist or a racist without ever saying anything about elites, without being a populist. And at the same time, you can be a populist. Uh, contemporary Venezuela is an obvious example, without buying into this kind of radical right content. So very pedantic but I think maybe it's important to not conflate these different these different these different phenomena are there un, other anti pluralisms yes there are um, historically you know we can find plenty I mean if you were a Leninist you weren't exactly a very pluralist kind of guy um, if you're inclined towards forms of theocracy today uh, you're certainly not going to be a very pluralist kind of kind of guy what is distinctive it seems to me, with regard to populism is that it relates back to a claim about the people and in particular i mean i haven't said much about this so far but i don't i think populists have to hold on to some notion that the people are morally pure They're a source of wisdom. You know, they can't be fundamentally wrong about something. Whereas the Leninist, of course, would say, look, you know, people are completely irrational. At at best, they're going to get to trade union consciousness. They need a vanguard Leninist party to tell them what's what. And, you know, theocrats would say the people are fallen and sinful and, you know, we will set them right, etc. And we have no trust in, you know, ordinary folks by by themselves, Whereas populists clearly couldn't say these these sorts of things. whether they actually believe that or not, whether they act in accordance with that belief, we can debate. But I think that has to be there as a kind of attribution of moral wisdom to to people. now, is is a certain type of left today perhaps equally anti-pluralistic, intolerant in certain ways? Certainly, you can you can find examples. Um, at the same time, I'd be very reluctant to construct a kind of symmetry here. Um, Many people who've, you know, uh, tried to react to my work have said, well, but look, you know, aren't some of the people who are reacting against populists ultimately the same? Aren't they saying, oh, these pernicious populists, and, you know, we have to exclude them because they exclude, we exclude them. And then we end up in a fairly paradoxical, paradoxical situation. First of all, I don't think that uh, the correct, so to speak, reaction to some of these popular strategies is is a complete exclusion. And I've I've never advocated that, and we can talk more about that if you you wish. Um, But secondly, I think that people taking a strong moral stance uh, is not quite the same as saying certain other people don't belong at all. So, uh, maybe a sort of cartoonish example, but if you really imagine those who might fit the sort of caricature of the supposedly intolerant woke left and so on, they're not saying that those they criticize don't really belong to the to the polity at all. They're completely out. You know, that's it. It's you know, it's entirely un-American to be like this or say that and and so on. Now, there's more to be said here, obviously, um, but overall. I think it's in and of itself been a problem that too many observers are essentially buying into a framing that more or less adopts the the kind of arguments and framing suggested by right wing populists. In other words, Culture is, prime, is, is the primary mover. is, is, is what, matters, what matters most. Uh, on one level, it's justified to think of some of the constituents of right wing populists as a community of victims. I mean, remember Trump in December telling his movement, "We're all we're all victims," um, and you know this led to an outcome, if, if I may put it this way. Where no white man could have a quiet coffee in a midwestern town, a diner, without being surrounded by ten sociologists and five New York Times journalists uh, being asked about grievances and so on. I don't obviously, I don't mean to dismiss the very real problems that that, that we can find here. Um, but I would be very reluctant to go along with a framing that puts culture first in, in a kind of unthinking, unproven way, um, and also one that, that too easily assumes that, yes, we're obviously talking about the left behind, because as by now, I think plenty of our colleagues have shown, um, left behind is, is not a totally useless category. But it's a hell of a lot more complicated than it's often meant out to be. And these are not always the worst off. It's very hard to establish, you know, causalities, which which, you know, people were very quick to claim in 2000 in 2016. So long story short, and of course, every professor will always conclude
0: on this note. It's much more complicated. So, Jan, can I can I ask one detail about that? Because it's a very interesting point you made about racism. And if I understood you, you were making the point that one could be a populist easily without being a racist, that they are kind of you know, orthogonal to one another or something. But is it the case that one can be a racist without, in the political sphere, without being a populist in the sense you're describing? Uh, I mean, it's just a question. I mean, I'm just thinking it through because it seems like the exclusionary claim of the pure people is a classic racist move. So I totally get that there are forms of populism that don't involve race. But are there forms of race that don't involve populism, racism that don't involve populism in, in the way you're describing?
2: Yeah, very, very, very good question. I would say that populism needs to involve some larger claim about the people, but also about your relationship to the people. It's for me a kind of representative claim essentially made by particular elites where they say only we truly represent people that we consider to be morally pure and 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 so on and in some countries at least we do find we do find um actors who conceive of themselves as basically elitist who say we are a very small group here of you know the the true and the pure and so on we don't actually represent anything larger and we again so a little bit like theocrats we actually consider most people to be somehow lost or no longer sort of be up to the task, uh, whatever, whatever whatever job they're supposed to play in some kind of you know racially constructed account of account of account of world of world history. So I take your point. I mean, they can be they, it's it's very plausible to argue that yeah, there's going to be something that makes them at least gives gives us a very strong family resemblance. I would I would say, but I can at least in some countries. So I'm thinking, for instance, of a, of a far right party in Hungary that has changed since its sort of heyday initially, um, but that clearly was much more invested in in an outright elitist language. And that would not have said, oh, the people are fine. We represent them uniquely and and so on. So in that sense, I think there's there's still something else that needs to be there, at least in my account, which, you know, yeah. obviously you don't have to like, but but, but uh, it's essentially a kind of particular claim of representation, which also means that at least in theory, it's always available. So we, we can construct a situation where, you know, as long as we have representative democracy and we, we, we think of politics as involving the claim, I represent another group, as long as that is the case, somebody can always appear and say, only I, truly represent the American people. I mean, nothing can, can prevent that, you know, from, from happening. You know, why it happens more often than in other times, and which particular constellations in particular countries sort of make it more likely, we, we can certainly debate. But I think we can sort of simply say, oh, there, there would be a way of getting rid of it altogether, as long as we stick with representative democracy as we know it.
1: Mm-hmm. So I wonder if we might talk a little bit about what you and I were discussing before Jan came on the line, which is, the way in which Jan's arguments about the importance of representation and deliberation and institutions push back against a certain strand of thinking on the left that has been very scornful of representation kind of the lineage that I, I sort of I mean I'm not an intellectual historian at all but kind of seems to me to run from Carl Schmitt through Chantal Mouffe and Laclau, who write about populism. And Jan, I think you address those people explicitly in the book as well. And there seems on the left, just to me, to be a certain kind of romance of this sort of direct, unmediated connection between the people in power and the people who put them in power. And your book, in some ways, is an emphatic defense of institutions and mediation. And I wonder if you could spell out that argument a little bit. I know this is something that you've written about a lot for a long time and probably had this argument many, many times and made this argument many times. But I think for our listeners, it would be very useful to hear it because I I see this kind of romance, the romanticism of that wing of thinking a lot in in my circles.
2: I think we still need those mediating institutions, which pretty much ever since the 19th century were considered crucial to make representative democracy work, by which I mean primarily political parties and more or less professional media. Obviously, associational life is much richer than that. We can talk about churches, trade unions, and and so on. I'm not dismissing the role of those, but we really can't imagine representative democracy as we have it today without parties and without professional media of one sort sort or another. Now, critics, of course, um, have long been saying that this automatically introduces a degree of inequality that these mediating institutions have a tendency towards becoming oligarchic in one form or another, becoming bureaucratic and so on. And a lot of these critiques, of course, can be justified. I'm, I'm not saying there's nothing to criticize about these, about these mediating, mediating institutions. Um, at the same time, I think the critique tends to underestimate what for shorthand we might call the normative potential of representation um ideally at least and you know that's that's a big if of course um a democracy has a truly open creative dynamic dimension such that new actors can come on the scene and say look i i think there are people out there who aren't properly represented or people who are represented but uh, aspects of their identity or their interests or certain ideas just aren't really in the poker game in the way in the way they should be And if people sort of then tend to identify with those kinds of claims, um, things can potentially move in a very progressive direction. Obviously, none of this is guaranteed. I mean, we've been talking about the sort of flip side of this. We've been talking about anti-pluralist actors who also make claims to, to representation. But I think there is nothing inherently problematic in the idea of representation as such. And if you think about the models which have sometimes been advanced to replace political parties altogether, for instance, or even to replace elections altogether. I mean, you know, there are plenty of people around today who would say, uh, let's do what the ancient Athenians did. Let's draw lots. You know, all of us should be, you know, if we truly believe in equality, then all of us should be, you know, qualified enough to, you know, fill certain offices and and do certain things. Um, All of which, all of which, again, has a certain plausibility. And what I also try to show in the book is that there are instances where alternatives to elections and representative democracy as we know it can be perfectly justified. But what I think some of these critics tend to overlook is something of which we've had a very drastic illustration just a couple of months ago. If you have elections and if you have structured parties, the role of the loser which is tremendously important in a functioning democracy, kind of is assured. Because A, to put it in a very sort of hard, brutal, realistic way in the way that, for instance, our colleague Adam Sieworski has has put it, one of the effects of elections is that people really figure out who's stronger and who's weaker. And if if we believe that elections, at least on some level, might always happen in, in the shadow of potential civil wars, it's kind of a good outcome that people know what's what, and you know the losers ideally will say, "Okay, uh, we'll wait it out. We'll give it another shot in four years." we'll uh, try to convince more people and so on but we're not going to start a war because we've just learned that we are the weaker party and we're going to destroy all the infrastructure in the process we're going to inherit a destroyed country that's not a good, good not a good not a good route to uh, to uh, to take <laughs> and with parties of course as well if we have actually functioning parties as opposed to a personal personality cult let's say where basically Uh, No internal dissent is allowed, where you can't have anybody who has a position of, let's say, critical loyalty, where you you criticize, well, you know who I'm talking about, you criticize Trump, but you can still be a Republican in good standing. If we don't have that kind of situation anymore, then parties also don't fulfill the function of basically having a long-term program, the flip side of which is they can live with an election loss, and they can say, we'll try again the next time around. If your party is simply about, with all due respect, a man in his early 70s who doesn't have a terribly long time horizon and where everything is always at stake, where it's really about the person and not about the program, it becomes very dangerous. So long story short, I think we should, we should certainly see the flaws in these mediating institutions and we haven't even gotten to the media. Um, but I think we should also recognize the distinctive normative advantages of these institutions, if they're well constructed, if they work at least halfway the way they the way they should, because they do contribute something to the to the health of democracy overall. And just as a last point, if we had you know what some of our colleagues wish should happen, so we we randomly select you know or let's say in a stratified randomized randomized way, we select you know citizens. They get together, they debate some policy issue, uh, they come up with a solution. There's a lot to be said for that in particular context. But what do you do as a loser in that process? After an election, you know what to do. You know you go to, from door to door, you canvas, you, yeah. you know tweet even more crazily, et cetera, at your opponents, you know whatever it might be. But as, as a loser in the process of sortition, I'm not sure what you would do next because you don't have this kind of pattern or rhythm of regular elections and institutions that participate in these elections, i.e., parties, where you kind of have a foothold if you have a particular if you have a particular agenda. So, so I know this can sound incredibly sort of retrograde and conservative,
0: but anyway, there it is. And one of the advantages of the argument about democracy as a self-correcting system is that it allows you to feel smug about the weakness of other systems. I mean, as you were referring to the internal weakness of the Soviet Union, you could say, well, look, other systems don't have the corrective mechanisms that we do. But they may not have those corrective mechanisms, but they have a whole new playbook right now, which is that they can borrow from one another. So I totally take your point that India, Brazil, the United States for some period of time, Hungary, Poland are very different underneath. But then they had a common playbook you know, you can see it with COVID, you know, they had a common playbook of responses that often were very successful. So can, can I ask how you think those two things together, like the existence of this um, advantageous populist uh, pass-through, you know, like where they, where they're tipping one another off about how to proceed?
2: I'm not uh, entirely sure whether we can uniformly say they've been successful. I think what we've seen is and again, this this can sound very basic, but I think the the distinction still matters. I think we have seen a significant distinction between those who really went all out in the direction of basically doing culture war, who immediately you know recoded masks as un-American and 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 so on, um, and who otherwise um, also had uh, maybe not so surprisingly very little administrative experience. So I'm thinking about I'm thinking about. Um, most obviously, Trump and and Bolsonaro, no. uh, who really, in a sense, you know, had, had never really properly governed, uh, unlike someone like Orban, who is, you know, whatever else you think about him, is, is a very savvy politician, really knows how a state apparatus works. Um, whereas some of these other characters simply thought, okay, we can just solve this by doing what we always do, which is basically our political business model of dividing people, reducing all policy questions to question of belonging, and that didn't work always work out so well. Having said that, um, maybe as a footnote, it's also, of course, not entirely true to say that Trump or Bolsonaro did absolutely nothing. I mean, that was occasionally alleged in in, in 2020. But I think what they actually very often did, um, while nobody was really paying attention to it, was to, to rev up the thing they had been doing from day one of their administrations, which is to deregulate like crazy. Um, under the cover of the pandemic, say let let American companies dump even more shit into rivers and forests. Uh, Bolsonaro saying let's destroy even more of the Amazon because you know nobody is really sort of paying attention to this right now. Plus we can maybe tell a story about the recovery of the economy, which is going to be driven driven by this and and so on. So these strategies, I think it's fair to say, didn't work out particularly particularly well. Um, Again, it might might sound like a very pedantic pedantic argument, but we we do also need to pay some attention to where exactly some of these populist actors are coming from, sort of what their own history is. I think some of them have taken away lessons from their own trajectory, so I think it's not entirely an accident that, for instance, Orbán and Kaczynski lost elections. And then they came back, and then the second time yeah. around, I mean, of course, this is bad news if you think about the United States and, and envisage certain scenarios in the, next, in the next couple of years. But they kind of, you know, in, in some cases, uh, I think had a very clear game plan of saying, look, we need to hijack the media, we need, we need to get the judges, we're not going to futz around this time with big symbolic gestures uh, about, you know, history museums and so on, we're going to go straight for the real, for the real power. Right,
0: but so yeah, yeah, If I, I maybe I probably framed the question wrong, but I think what you just said is in the spirit of in which I was asking the question, which is, I totally admit the differences, but what you're pointing at is a extramural set of strategies and successes that work in the political sphere you know, that are, that are antithetical to the representative democratic structures that you're kind of arguing in favor of. So, so, um, I mean, maybe this is a way to transition to our question about the Brahmin left. It's the question is like, what is the, um, you know, it's one thing to argue against populism. If you see populism as innately self-destructive, like if I look at, you know, just a machine that's falling apart, even at the moment that it's built, then you'd have one argument against it. But if you actually see it as capable of developing momentum and headway, losing elections and coming back, for example, that's, that's more worrisome, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you're describing a pattern that is more worrisome in 2020 than it was maybe ever before.
1: What is it that has made these democracies varied as they are vulnerable to the populist challenge? why and maybe this isn't exactly the right way of thinking about history but why does it seem like at least that they're now more vulnerable than they ever have been there are a few things that you say in your book you say I think you give some structural and institutional accounts uh, reasons you you talk about the hollowing out of the party system you talk about the in Europe at least the rise of these supranational institutions that have left people feeling Unrepresented and then you also say some things about some more conjunctural factors like the failed response to the crisis in 2008 2010. Uh, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what has made these polities vulnerable to the populist challenge and why, as John was saying, it seems like they're able to draw on this set of tactics to so successfully or maybe not so successfully, but at least worryingly enough um, take over or at least challenge?
2: So I would mention a couple of elements, always with, again, the very pedantic preface that, you know, we really need to pay very close attention to these national trajectories. So let's say the reasons for the rise of Jean-Marie Le Pen in the 70s and 80s are really very different from, you know, what may have facilitated the rise of Erdogan in Turkey, you know, in in earlier this this century. Um, Clearly on one level, there needs to be a certain kind of discontent but that can never be enough it's not like everything was working fantastically and all of a sudden we have policy challenges or we have crises and then democracy as such goes to hell i mean uh, it's always very tempting of course to construct golden ages but for most of us when we really think about it you know the 70s weren't exactly a golden age you know lacking in policy challenges and 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 so on so i think we we need we need discontent but we need perhaps also a discontent that is easy to recode along cultural lines. So it certainly helps if you are already in a situation where you can tell people a story that appeals to the notion that, oh, the country is divided between something that supposedly is real and something else that, you know, doesn't really belong at all or is traitors or a threat or or what have you. Um, these things, of course, are not given. I mean, I think this is the mistake that is sometimes made by by people in the U.S. that they say, "Oh, yeah, it's all obvious. Of course, flyover country versus by coastal liberal elite. You know, of course, our politics is structured this way." But of course, there have also always been cultural differences and they weren't always translated like this into, into, into a particular party system. And very often, I'm not telling you anything remotely new, um, what's behind the supposedly deep cultural differences is much better explained by, well, lack of infrastructure, very difficult to get to certain places. Uh, it's not like, oh, everything is entirely determined by these by these cultural factors, but savvy politicians can certainly use a situation like this and start to convince people that, well, this really is about cultural groups that are supposedly you know, uh, opposed to each other in a certain way. And what's worse, if other actors then are inclined to adopt this framing. I mean, this goes, goes back to our discussion about, you know, nobody in, in the Midwest can have a quite cup of coffee with, without being being questioned about, about grievances. And others react in a way that then reinforces some of these frames. Then, of course, at a certain point, yeah, it becomes very strong and it's very hard to undo and it will not be good enough to say, oh, look, you know, you guys think it's all about it's all about cultural differences. But here's my, you know, magic solution for your local transportation problem, as if, you know, that was as if that was that was enough. And that since you since you're particularly interested in in the left, I think this has been one of the major mistakes, certainly of the European left. Um, I think one of the, 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 the underlying trends which we can generalize about in the, in the early 21st century, certainly in Europe, and I would say in other parts of the world too, is the mainstreaming of the far right. Not because the far right is in and of itself so powerful, but because enough other actors, for various reasons, eventually kind of throw in the towel and say, yeah, these people are really telling us the truth about the working class. And, you know, we hate the fact that workers now hate foreigners and seem to be so racist, but we're just going to have to live with that and kind of adopt Adopt that kind of framing. And then you get outcomes like Denmark, where people think that, oh, to be a good social democrat, you have to be super tough on asylum, immigration, and and so on. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of the empirical evidence doesn't really support this picture, that it's not true That, you know, workers have all deserted leftist parties and gone over to the far right. Some certainly have. It's it's, it's empirically true that in some countries you can say that the far right is now mainly a working class party. True. But that tends to forget the fact that many, many other people don't vote at all. And, you know, I think this is actually one of the points that, that uh, Piketty rightly makes in a footnote where he says, look, if, you know, if, 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 if it were true that all that you know, that all the working class ever wanted was xenophobic parties, everybody would be so happy right now because, you know, there's more of this stuff on offer than ever before. But instead, many people still don't vote at all. And obviously, that can also have complex reasons, but surely it's not a crazy thought to say that well maybe there is just nothing on offer that you know would really make people say yeah that's a kind of attractive attractive program so it's 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 real discontent it's institutional vulnerabilities that that you also hinted at so weakened party systems lack of internal pluralism within parties um, all kinds of all kinds of weaknesses that are more institutional um, but it's also the mistakes of other actors and sometimes I think last point I would I would add um, it. We, of course, we will never know whether you know an Erdogan or a Chavez always would have gone in an authoritarian direction anyway. Nobody can tell from it as as a counterfactual. But given that at least some of these actors initially. I think, had substantive justified claims. I mean, when Erdogan said, look, there are people in rural Turkey who have been systematically ignored by the Kemalist elite, you know, this is not like, oh, this is crazy populism. This is so obviously untrue. When, you know, Chavistas said, look, Venezuela is not exactly a super egalitarian country of equal opportunity. That wasn't crazy either. But in, in, in at least some of these cases, existing elites really kind of shut down the poker conversation right away. And, and I think that may have led to a dynamic of radicalization, which perhaps, I'm saying perhaps, you know, maybe maybe, an Erdogan always had the playbook ready. I mean, he had this famous quote that, that you probably remember where he said, look, democracy is basically like a train or a tram, you get on. And then, you know, once you've reached your destination, you get off. So that's pretty strong indication that maybe he was never, you know, such a great Democrat to begin with. But I think it's, it, it will be certainly be facile to assume that, oh, anything that these characters ever say, we can simply discount. It's going to be fake news. It's going to be demagogic. We don't have to listen at all. That's a mistake. But the other extreme, as I've been trying to make plausible, is also a mistake. To think that, oh, Trump proved to us that 63 million people, or by now 75, 75 million people, think exactly like he's saying because he is the one-to-one representative of all these people. That's not true either. And that basically leads to a kind of defeatist attitude, like we've seen with European Social Democrats, who simply throw in the towel and say, okay, we just have to be a tiny bit racist ourselves now. So,
0: Young, can I, I'd love to follow up on that question of follow, throwing in the towel, because I, I hear what you're saying about like the De, the Denmark example is such a good example, but I actually thought you were going to say something slightly different, um, in terms of the cultural politics of the left, which is I thought you were going to allude to something that I think happens in America, which is that there can be a countervailing politics of identity. You know, in other words, conceding to Trump, the, that aggrieved white man with his cup of coffee and claiming instead that one's coalition has to be defined on a kind of a mirror image identitarian basis. Do, do you want to talk about that? Because that seems like a, a political fallacy as well. Yes, I agree. Um, at the same time, I think
2: many observers are in danger of constructing a sort of false equivalence of, sure. oh, there is right wing yeah, yeah. you know, white majority identity politics, and then sort of the stuff that happens on the left is exactly the same. Yeah. And I mean, this has been very strong in Europe as well. Of course, people then sort of coming on the scene and saying, look, let's just forget about all this stuff. Let's talk about the only thing that's real, which is you know economic issues. And if only Social Democrats rediscovered the social question and so on. Obviously, as you can tell by now, I have some sympathy with, with the imperative to rediscover the social question. But at the same time, there's this sort of idea that everything else is some kind of self-indulgent, narcissistic mm-hmm. sort of minority stuff. When when we're talking about people claiming basic rights, basic rights not to be harassed, let alone be shot by the police, uh, basic rights not to be harassed, let alone be raped by a powerful men. I mean, this is not narcissistic, you know, crazy stuff um, and, and, and so on. So uh, plus, maybe, maybe less obviously, um, again, the kind of golden age that occasionally people then construct where they say, oh, in the good old days, uh, it was all economics all the way down you know, gives us an image of socialists as if they had simply been a sort of lobby for workers who all they ever did was negotiate slightly better working conditions, pay rise, and so on, forgetting that, of course, this was also a cultural movement. Of course, this was about recognizing the dignity of a certain kind of work and, and so on. So this kind of, this kind of uh, false alternative, I think, is, is, is fateful and has consumed enormous energies that perhaps could have been spent more productively on something else.
1: I think the perfect place to go now might be it might be the place to end. I'm not sure, John, whether you have other questions. But no, no, I think uh, we're moving to an ending. I agree. I, I think, you know, you've uh, very eloquently pointed to this. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but this false choice, I suppose, that the left has been confronted with um, and said that a lot of energy has been spent on this failed false choice. You also end your book by saying that the solution to the populist challenge is different. It's to forge, I think you say something like to forge a new social contract. So I think maybe we're moving naturally towards asking you, Jan, to save us and to tell us what the what the way forward ought to be. Um, it seems like neither of those false choices that you laid out is the right choice. So what do you see as the right choice? And maybe, maybe the narrower way to put it is, I think I, uh, take you to be addressing yourself in part, at least to the left. So maybe the question is what's the way forward for the left in the landscape that you've outlined. That's not much narrower, by the way.
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad I have three hours left to, to answer this uh, very simple, very simple question. So, uh, I think it's 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 a multi-dimensional project, uh, which of course sounds you know like like a very highfalutin kind of kind of thing to say. But um, I think, first of all, yes, you you got to find a way, a creative way, to bring together. Concerns about basic rights, which is how I think a lot of, about a lot of these identity questions. Um, they're not about they're not about oh, this is culture as some amorphous you know luxury thing, etc. Um, you you got to think that together with economic questions. And I know that it can be very facile at this point to you know draw great lessons from the pandemic, but I think all those people who said, look, you know, it, it's not an accident that we saw certain patterns of who was most vulnerable. Um, is the kind of thing that, you know, a good politician, a good party will creatively use and kind of appeal both to lived experience, including certain cultural experiences and bring it back to the economic at the, at the same time. And again, if, you know, if I may add a footnote, which is what you always get when you invite these professor types, um, it's, it's, I think it's a fatal mistake if one now assumes sort of similar to 2008, that, oh, you know, some of these lessons are obvious, I mean, remember how in 2008 people said, oh, it's going to be great for the left, because it's so obvious how finance capitalism has, has failed. Well, as, as we all know, the, the movement that most successfully addressed 2008, both sort of in terms of politics on the ground, but also in terms of symbolic constructions, happened to be the Tea Party. Which you know nobody had reckoned with, and, and the the left at that point, okay, there was occupy, which obviously mattered too. But for a while there was a real vacuum, and this kind of assumption that oh every crisis basically delivers its own lessons, and you don't need to do the hard work of precisely forming these representations that bring people together in a way that isn't already completely obvious. Um, that's something that somebody needs to needs to do, and that does need to involve in, involve everything. More particularly, I would I would I would stress. That yes, you need to you need to reengage those people who, in one form or another, have said goodbye to representative democracy altogether because they simply don't vote. Um, obviously, in the United States, you know, we have a special situation in terms of very low levels of participation in general. Um, but as as a general trend, uh, we've been observing this in many in many democracies, and you can't explain it by saying, "Oh, that's because everybody is so so happy with you know the way the way things are." Um, I don't want to sort of tell you an uncritical story about some of these new parties or movements like Podemos in Spain, or Five Stars in Italy. Um, It's a a complicated matter. I think there's plenty to criticize as well. But the fact that some of them basically uh, with very few resources came onto the scene and were able to bring people back to the polls who had basically said goodbye to representative democracy is a major, major achievement. I mean, if you think about you know, young people who had their life chances radically reduced by the euro crisis, by the financial crisis, and so on, and then in addition, had the sense that, oh, in our country, nothing ever changes. We have sort of two more or less technocratic parties, which you know, alternate in government. You know, nothing is really, is really open, is dynamic, and, and so on. Um, the fact that then these people, A, go to the polls, B, find that their party loses. And then go back home and try again is near miraculous if you think back to the 1970s young people occasionally had different ideas when they felt that a system was totally closed and they, they couldn't do anything 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 about it so that's sort of the direction in which i know this isn't super concrete but that's roughly the direction in which i would be i would be i would be, um, I would be thinking and maybe one not so obvious last point in this context, because you've, you've, you, you have asked very, very good searching questions about the sort of previous mistakes one shouldn't repeat. Um, I think I'm not the only one who thinks that the kind of technocratic temptation the tendency to say, okay, the left can, you know, always just talk about modernization and rational solutions to certain problems, you know, the kind of stuff we saw with the Third Way, but that is today also extremely strong with someone like Macron, who of course claims to be beyond left and right. All you have to be is sort of in this reasonable center. That's why both former socialists and former uh, Republicans can sort of join, join 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 the project. That I think is again something that is at least somewhat likely to provoke a populist counter-reaction. Counter because populists will immediately have an opening where they say, look, what do you mean democracy without choices, democracy without the people? You know, wh- where are the people in all this? Doesn't mean that we should now think of them as good faith defenders of democracy. But again, sometimes what they say happens to be not totally implausible. Yeah. And the sort of particularly fateful dynamic I think we've seen in a number of countries is precisely that when populists then succeed, technocrats are going to double down on, in a sense, their form of anti-pluralism because they're gonna say, look, there's only one rational way. If you disagree, you basically reveal yourself to be irrational. That strengthens the populists again, who also of course have a form of anti-pluralism where they say, if you disagree with us, you are the traitor to the people, you don't really belong and so on. And everything that we should think of as quote unquote normal democracy sort of disappears between these, between these, two, these two options. And that's something that you know, we've seen play out in real life in France very strongly. A kind of sense that it's either Macron and technocracy, or it's crazy right-wing populism a la, a la Le Pen. That's that's really not a good a good a good situation for a democracy to be in, and and the parties that you're asking about need to find a way to to break that up, and they need to have the courage to to avoid. Uh, the technocratic temptation, which I think is 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 strong, because a lot of these actors fear that oh we're going to be seen as too radical, yeah. um, or you know we're going to look like we're going to lose a certain let's say bourgeois middle class, call it what you wish, constituency because you just can't do certain things. And I know this can sound very self-helpy and 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 and, and kitschy, but occasionally it just takes somebody to have the courage to resist that temptation and and do something. Well, more courageous.
0: So I, I already had enough to worry about with President Biden. Now you've got me worried that he's Macron, also. Like, I, like that's a terrifying prospect. You know that, that um... I, I think he's I, I can I, I I
2: I might be I might be in a position to 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 relieve your anxieties at least a little bit because I think yeah. he. Uh, obviously sometimes has also talked in a fairly technocratic technocratic manner. I mean, a lot of the kind of infra- infrastructure stuff does yeah. sound like, look, you know no no right thinking person, no reasonable person could disagree with this. But a, this sort of is actually kind of true in many respects. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he's really standing in front of an American public and says there is no real choice here. Um, or you know, of, of, of course, he's tempted to go the same route as Macron is, which is that look, the other side is basically illegitimate, and 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 so on. Um, which was also, of course, the mistake of of Clinton in two thousand sixteen, and to some degree again in in, in Biden two thousand twenty. You mean to,
0: Hillary Hillary yeah, Clinton?
2: Enough to tell people that Trump is so awful yeah. that this you know wins you wins, you, wins you the election. Yeah. Yeah. But I I I I think that on on the on the positive side, I think there is a genuine attempt to actually justify these policies beyond simply saying, oh, this is you know the the only rational thing you can you you can do, and actually giving people a sense of the concrete benefits and and what can concretely change in their in their life and that's just i mean i wouldn't call that populist of course but you know some people might say well this is exactly what in the old days in the in the united states was meant by populism or in another idiom it's just good old social democratic stuff mm-hmm. and turns out some people actually God forbid, like that. And, you know, once it's in place, and people realize it's working for them, just, you know, just as much as they realized, the Affordable Care Act actually, you know, has certain benefits. uh, It turns out it's actually pretty hard to undo. And it, it does, it does make for a long term change.
0: All right. Well, I always like to, to find a, a rare moment of optimism to end on, so I'm I'm going to seize that.
2: That's, I was trying really, really hard to give you exactly that, so, <laughs> after all this stuff about, you know, the populist, the all-powerful populist international.
0: Eye-opening, eye, eye but we want to tilt our eyes up at the end. So uh, I'll just say that, recall, this book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mendel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by our newest audio intern, Naomi Cohen, website design and social media by Nai Kim of the English department. Adana and I are very eager to hear your comments, your criticism and your thoughts on today's discussion or on the notions of the Brahmin left generally. So please feel free to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed today's show, you might check out earlier conversations with Thomas Piketty on proprietary ideologies, with Quinn Slobodian on plutocratic capture of democratic governance, and of course, uh, the other two episodes of our summer series on the Brahmin left. So Jan, thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And so from all of us here at Recall This Book, thank you for listening.